from 300 years ago, right? And, and I want to tell you something. You all are probably out there thinking, Henry, I know you are. He's a bluegrass guy, and he loves banjo. What's he doing asking Susan to play this song? Isn't that what's going through your head? I love all kinds of music, don't you, Tim? I love, I love bluegrass, blues, rock and, oh, classic rock and roll, country, even the new country, because it reminds me of classic rock and roll. Preacher, I even like uh, rap music. There's one song, and only one song. It's called, let me get this right, <clears throat> uh, It Is What It Is and It Ain't What It Ain't. You, right? I mean, you got to love a song with that title, right? That's all the words to it, too, by the way. But, but that music was by a guy. It was by a fella 300 years ago named Johann Bach. So let's take him, Bach. You all have heard of him, right? And Mozart, you've heard of him. Beethoven and Schroeder from Charlie Brown. What, what are those four composers? Schroeder. <laughs> We've been trying to work that into to, uh, for our whole lives, haven't we, preacher? That one song. So what do they have in common? Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, and Schroeder, what do they have in common? Christmas music, right? I want to tell you something. Out of the four of them, you might find this interesting. Bach was from the early 1700s, 1734, something like that. The, the song that Susan played for us was called Prelude Number 1 in C Major. And more on that in a second. He wrote that for Christmas. But let me tell you about this man. I'm so impressed with this man. I'm envious, Charlie, of this fellow because his love for God is something I can only strive to, to get to. That's what I want to strive to get to. He's regarded as the greatest composer of all times. He's celebrated as the creator of many masterpieces. That was one of them. And aren't you blown away that Susan played that so beautifully? We knew she was a, thank you, absolutely. Um, he, he, he played, he was masterpieces of church music and instrumentals like we heard, but he was one of the most important composers in history. And listen to this, his primary goal was not the almighty riches and dollars and fame and success. What do you suppose his primary goal was? Anybody? Pleasing God. That was his number one goal in life, was simply pleasing God. As a matter of fact, he wrote this, I quote, The goal of music was not or is not to entertain or demonstrate talent, but listen, to bring glory to God. So that's why I wanted to wanted to ask Susan to play this this morning, to tell this story about this guy. In 1934, he was preparing for Christmas. He wrote... An oratory, oratorio, let me get this said right. I love oratorio, Rodney, because it's got the word Oreo in it. You cannot go wrong with a word that's got Oreo in it. Oratorio, what does that mean? I had no idea, so I looked it up. Basically, it means a large-scale musical work. Bach wrote this Christmas oratorio. It was three hours long, but the whole thing was to bring glory to God. Every, every ounce of it. You heard just a bit of it. But what is it? It's a large-scale musical work for orchestra and voices and a narrative. So somebody talking through it, through the music, a religious theme. A well-known example is Bach's Christ Christmas Oratorio. During the music, 
there were things said from the chorus, such as, and this is what we should be doing this morning, what a great day to have Christmas on a Sunday. How often does that happen? The next one's 11 years from now. The next time Christmas calls on, falls on Sunday is 11 years. Rejoice and be joyful. This is part of that of his oratorio that he wrote. Come praise these days. Serve the Most High with cheerful choruses. Honor his name. And it was packed with prayer. Listen, this is Bach's plea during the oratorio. Oh, Jesus, set me yourself, set by me yourself your light. Show your light through me is what he was saying. That I may discover and know what delights you. But here's my favorite part. Uh, as Bach thought about Jesus as he was writing this, he offered his life to him with the, the, these words. This, come, this comes from a biography of him. Bach said to Jesus, he said, My life, take it. It is my spirit and mind, heart, soul, and courage. Take it all, and may it please you well. What kind of lesson can we take from that? Roger, I, I, that's, that's courageous. Dale, this Bach, he was not a fan. He was a follower. Is that ringing a bell with anybody? This man was certainly a follower. Here's what I'd like to do. This is a shorter piece, but it's still from Bach. It's from the oratorio. Now I can't say it. Oratorio. I'd like for you to listen to it. It's a shorter piece, but it's part of that. I think you'll recognize this one. Clearly, shut your eyes. Because remember, when he wrote these words, he was writing every bit of it for the glory of God. That's all that mattered to him as he wrote these notes and this music. Is music a favorite part of Christmas for you? It is me. So let's, if you would, please. Susan was performing uh, Minuet in G Major. Did everybody recognize that? That, that, was written, that was written for God. That was part of this Christmas uh, music that Bach wrote. This is from a man. That music is from a man that said to Jesus, My life, take it. It is my spirit and mind, heart, soul, and courage. Take it all. May it please you well. That's what, that's what came out of that. That's what Jesus gave back to Bach was that beautiful, beautiful music. He celebrated Jesus' triumph. Because of him we have victory, he said. I'm just quoting some of this. Thank you, Susan. Let her know that thank you for using her talent for the glory of God this morning. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Merry Christmas.
Isn't this a great day? Should we say Merry Christmas and praise Jesus in the same breath, especially today? I think so. I think we always should probably do that. Um, Who here has a family tradition of reading the Bible? I love that we have all these kids in here today. Kenny, I know. Isn't that wonderful? We've got your, your class. We've got your church in here with us today, and I'm thrilled for that. Who's got the family tradition of, of uh, sitting down and reading the Bible story? And, and reading, do you do it before presence or after presence or at night or? I do it before. What's that? I do it before. You do it before? Who, who, and we had a lot of hands in here, and that's a wonderful thing. And, in fact, Linda and I did it for years in Texas. We don't really have anybody come around now to do it with, but she would always say, well, here's the thing. We'd have people over there that had kids, and maybe we didn't, didn't know them as well. We'd bring kids from church and uh, bring them in and, and, and their parents and feed them, or nieces, nephews, grandkids, everybody else. You all know how that goes. But sometimes there were people, families there that probably had never heard the Christmas story. I'm talking about the adults, not just the children. So... Miss Linda would just always say, Keith, and, and this was before presents, before food even. So that's kind of saying, okay, before we open gifts, we're going to talk about the greatest gift, is what, what the whole idea was. So we'd sit down there and read the, read the message. You know, it's kind of hard when you start thinking about it. In fact, I, I had somebody just this season say, Keith, where's the Christmas story in here? Well, it's all over the place. In fact, it's actually cover to cover. So you can't read the whole thing cover to cover before you eat, right? I mean, we, so we got to get get a little narrow it down just a little bit better than that. So, so where's it at? So I, I got to tell you, um, I'm going to walk through it this morning, just like we used to do. And it, so those of you that want to make this a family tradition, take some notes here. I'm going to give you the verses as we go through here. The way I do it, and this is just, you know, that this is just me. Everybody kind of does it different, but this is the way I would do it. It's a story about the gift of all gifts. You know, if we're going to tell the story of Jesus and tell the Christmas story, it really has to start off in Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? Now, we don't, you can log and look it up if you want to. I think David's going to put it back here, but. Genesis 1-1, what's the first three words? In the beginning. So that means, that tells me it starts right there, doesn't it? So, David, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. It's that simple. In the beginning. So that's where it all starts. For us, eternity started prior to that, didn't it? We have no idea how to even wrap our minds around that. But that is where it starts for us. Where does it go from there? You know, preacher has been preaching for three weeks ahead of this today on Christmas. Y'all have caught that, and I've loved it. And, in fact, preacher, you'll be happy to know I remember every one of them. Because <laughs> I made notes. I had to. He was thinking I was playing on my phone, but I was typing notes into my phone. So I'd remember this. But let me tell you something. Uh, do y'all believe in coincidentals, coincidences? Well... Not really. Three weeks ago, preacher preached on exactly the same thing that Linda and I had in our Sunday school class. And we did not plan that. How many books are in the Bible? 
How many chapters are in there? A lot, right? <laughs> That's a technical term. There's a lot of them. So what are the odds that we would happen to pick the same 14 verses on the same day to teach in our Sunday school class and for him to preach on? And that is John 1. So let's turn to John 1. That would be the second part. So Genesis 1 has got to be the first part of the story. Then John 1, the preacher just went through this with us, so I'm not going to stay there long. But verse 1, in the beginning. Boy, that lines right up with Genesis 1, doesn't it? Same thing. In the beginning was the Word. So those kind of things kind of go hand in hand. Was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now let's jump ahead to 14. Because preacher just took us through all those verses. But let's look at 14. John 1 verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace. So what do we got here? Well, so what was born on Christmas Day? Who was born on Christmas Day? The Word. You know, John 1, 14, that's the Christmas story out of John. In fact, I would add, add to it just a little bit. You're not supposed to add to the Bible, so this is just me paraphrasing some. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word was made flesh. Stop. Add in, in your mind, in Bethlehem. And the Word was made flesh in Bethlehem. My Bible's got that scratched in there. Just to remind me that that's John's Christmas story. God the Son from eternity became human in the little town of Bethlehem. Could that be fulfilled prophecy? Is it fulfilled prophecy? It is, isn't it? Again, this is part of the Bible. The Bible story to read to children and family. Micah 5.2 was a prophecy. Yes, Micah... Chapter 5, 5, verse 2. And the interesting part here, 700 years before the Word was made flesh, this was written. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. This is to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old from everlasting. You know, my favorite preacher <clears throat> taught us something last week. Y'all might have caught this. I wrote this one down because I loved it. Cradle, from the cradle to the cross to the crown. That's what that ver that's what Mike is talking about right here. <laughs> from the cradle to the cross to the crown. There's many places that that's talked about. We we got to make sure that's part of the Christmas story, don't we? Isn't it our duty to share with others and share them? Is the gospel part of the Christmas story? The gospel is the main part of the Christmas story, isn't it? So let's see. One reason that Old Testament prophecy is so important is because, listen to this, and I think I've shared this before, 300 predictions in here about Jesus that establish his messianic credentials. Trent, I bet I'm going to check your memory here. And I'm glad you're here. And by the way, Trent, you were my number one student in Sunday school. And you can tell your brother that. So, listen, it, it, there's 300 predictions ahead of Jesus is predicting Jesus. What are the odds of that? I don't mean to sound like a gambling man here. 
Charlie, but what are the odds? The odds are astronomical to fit that. As a matter of fact, just the, just the chance of one man being born in Bethlehem that Micah predicted, that Micah prophesied, just that odds was one in 300,000 just to meet one of them. Well, there's 300 more. Let me give you kind of an example. This is a new number I just learned yesterday. Um, if we don't even want to talk about meeting the 300 prophecies and, and filling, fulfilling those by one man like Jesus did, but the odds of filling just eight of them are amazing. You know, we're talking about he was born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, and more and more and more. We, could, we don't want to take the time to name them, but here's a new number I learned. 1.7 sextillion to one. That's the odds. One of meeting one out of eight of those prophecies. To put that in a picture for you, put put uh, 1.7 and then put 17 zeros behind it. That's the way the number shows. Do that later. That'll show you the odds of one individual fulfilling just eight of those 300 prophecies. <laughs> Is there any doubt? Can there be any doubt? You know, how many of y'all have heard when you're talking to someone that's not saved, doesn't believe the Bible, oh, that's just, that's just a piece of literature, and there's no way that all that happened. It's just a made-up, wonderful little story, and that's written by man. Has anybody ever heard that before? We've all heard that, haven't we, over and over and over again. That's where prophecy can help them understand this, is, this can't be just made up. It's impossible. Okay, where do we go next? Well, I think next let's just go straight to Luke. Let's go Luke 1. So make a couple of notes. Luke, and we'll start in chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll start in 26 and 27. Preacher preached this two weeks ago. He talked about Mary. And y'all remember this? Mary wasn't a random choice. We also learned that Mary was an educated person. She was educated in Scripture. She was taught uh, at an early age, because she was probably 14 or so, preacher said, 13 or 14. Uh, and she was, So she was a godly woman. And in the, here's verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now let's skip to verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Now, from there, if I was telling this story to family, and maybe a bunch of kids sitting, in a, sitting around my recliner, I thought about putting, I didn't want to take it away from Charlie, but I thought about putting the recliner right here and telling this story. But, Charlie, I don't want to do that to you. So let's jump to Matthew 1, and we'll start in verse 18. We talked about Mary, and we talked about a, the angel coming to Mary to explain this. Don't you think she was, she was very scared about the whole thing? until she went over to Elizabeth's house and started thinking about it. Then she started praising God. 
and quoting scripture while praising God. What about Joseph? We find that part of the story in Matthew, so that's the reason we need to make the jump over there. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. Let's go to 19 and 20. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her as of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that amazing? The Lord appeared unto him in a dream. That's amazing. So he's got to make sure. The Lord came to Joseph and said, don't worry about it. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt name his, uh, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So there's the cradle to the cross right there, is it there? Right there in that one verse, cradle to the cross. You see it? 22, now all this was done that it may, might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then, 24 and 5, Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew not her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to just remind you right here. The Galilean wedding that, that Linda did for us, I don't know, a year or two ago. Y'all remember that? When, because this says this, there's some confusion here. Well, was they married or was they not? Was they just engaged? Well, remember the Galilean wedding where they met at the gates, the gates of town, the gates of Galilee, and said, Nazareth, and said, uh, Galilee, I'm sorry, I had it right the first time, didn't and said the, the, the contract was being made between the fathers. So this was an arranged marry, marriage. And it went something like this. The proposal was real simple. Do you, Mary, do you want to marry this guy? And Joseph held out a cup of wine. And she simply, to accept it, would take the wine and drink it. That means, yes, I'll marry him. And that also meant that they were married right there. Or she could push the wine back and said no. Now, that was unusual in culture for a woman to, woman to be able to say no, wasn't it, in, her, in an arranged marriage especially. So when she took that cup and drank of it, they were married. That was saying, I do, right there. I do. Now, they didn't live together till the father said so, and they didn't consummate, consummate the marriage till the father said so. But that's where it says Joseph didn't want to go get her divorced <laughs> because they were married. Okay, so just don't be confused on that. So that's how serious this actually was. It was more than just, well, my fiancé is all of a sudden with child. No, my wife is all of a sudden with child. So a little more to it. Okay, let's go back to Luke. <clears throat> back to our story. Go back to Luke. Luke 2, and we're going to go 1 through 20. And it came, so, so kids, listen to me. This is the fun part of the story. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made with the governor of Syria, 
and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. We're going to talk more about Bethlehem in a minute. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, with being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. There was no room for them at the inn. Just to add a little side story in there, there probably wasn't a Hotel 6 there in Bethlehem at the time. They're talking about a guest house, somebody's home. But everybody was full up because of this. Everybody traveled in, right, and, and were there needing a place to stay. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And if you one that marks in your Bible, underline this. It is in mine. And this shall be a sign unto you. Whew, that's curious, isn't it? What should be a sign unto me? Unto me, <laughs> would be my question as a shepherd. Ye shall find that babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. There's their sign. Okay, what does that mean? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I wonder if Johann Bach, Johann Bach, use this verse, glory to God. That, that was his life's mission in writing music. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one, one, one another, let us go. Let us now go even unto Bethlehem. And see these things. They had their sign. I, I don't get it, but they got it apparently. And see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. I underline that part too. They made known abroad. What does that mean? They took what they had just seen and what they had heard and what they knew and witnessed. And in my mind, preacher, maybe I'm off on this, but I believe... Right then and there, they became the first evangelist in the world. They were the first Billy Graham crusade running around, telling this story, telling what had just happened. And the wise men were probably the second troop of, of evangelists. And all they, all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in, in, in her heart, and the shepherds returned glorifying Praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, it was told unto them. So, oh wait, there's more to the story, isn't there? Last week, preacher talked talk to us, preached to us from Matthew 2. 
which what's that missing part of the story when we're telling our, our families and kids and fem- friends and family? The wise men, we've got to bring the wise men into play. So preacher preached that just last week for us. I'm amazed, you know, <clears throat> talking about the, the gifts and the fact that, you know, how, who knows how many wise men. All the little details really doesn't matter in the scheme of things. What, what I think that matters is the glory that they were given to God, to Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, right, the, right then and there. And they knew that. Preacher, I also loved, uh, what term was it? Students of Daniel, the Magi, the wise men, students of Daniel coming from Babylon over there. How long did it take them? I, you know, Kenny, um, the Pony Express riders, as far as a four-legged animal, can make up more ground than any other four-legged animal. Cody, you'll like this. They can do 70 miles in a day, but they've got to have six different fresh horses to helping them along with those 70 miles. So coming, how far is it from Babylon to Bethlehem, you think? Good little piece, isn't it? Preacher, you looked that up, I think, one at 350 miles, 500. So it's walk, you know, walking, with a, walking along with loaded down camels, maybe with a whole posse of people, you know, to, to carry their stuff. Probably had to have a lot of water just to make that trip. Who knows how long it took? So we know it's probably longer than eight days and probably less than two years, somewhere in there. They finally showed up, and they showed up with gifts. God provides, you know, and this is the, the amazing thing. God had this all planned. The, the, the Son of Man had this all planned. How do you think they funded their trip? Because did Joseph and Mary have, have saddlebags full of money? They were poor. Matter of fact, when they went to Jerusalem, they bought pigeons, a couple of turtle doves, as their sacrifice. They didn't have any money. People of money bought a lamb. <clears throat> they couldn't do that. They ended up with a couple of pigeons. So they didn't have any money. Until the Magi brought them money to fund their trip to Egypt. Does that make sense? Wow, all of a sudden now, it's way more than just a gift to show. This is a gift that they're going to need to continue their, their mission. Isn't that amazing? All right, listen. There's a lot more. Let's back up a minute. <clears throat> A lot of this comes from Jewish history, Hebrew culture, um, Jewish agriculture. You all know that Linda loves studying that, and because of that, she's kind of got me looking at it too. Bethlehem, the word itself, and Linda will probably next Sunday morning in our class take this a little deeper, but for now... Just the word, Bethlehem, little town, but big significance. Could, I mean, this could have happened in any town. So why did God pick this town, I wonder? One, the city of David, right? So it's got a lot of history there. So it kind of makes sense. Let's see, the line of David, the city of David, should be Jesus should be born there, right, for one. Also, Bethlehem, what does that mean? What's the Hebrew version? For, how does that translate from Hebrew? It translates to the house of bread, Dale, when we were in John, remember the I am's? I am the bread of life. So that starts to kind of, okay, that's making some sense now, but what else? Did you know that Bethlehem was famous as being um, 
a sheep lamb producer in that area. So they produced not only just lambs for everyday eating, they produced unblemished, perfect, beautiful lambs to be used for sacrifice. Bethlehem was known for that. That was one of their, their things that, that they were well known for. As a matter of fact, you can write this down and look at it later. This is not part of this Christmas story. This is, this is to be continued. This is, wait, there's more to the Christmas story. In Genesis 35, 19 through 21, we've learned that Bethlehem, where it was first mentioned, was Rachel's burial site. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the lineage of Jesus, and her name means you, lamb or sheep. The passage also tells us, and this is the important part to understand right off the bat, it tells us that she was buried at a place called Migdal, M-I-G-D-A-L, Eder, E-D-E-R. That's Hebrew, <clears throat> Migdal, Eder. The Hebrew tra- it translates to, listen to this, it's where it gets interesting. The tower of the flock is how that translates. According to Jewish history, it was there in Bethlehem that unblemished, firstborn male lambs were born. And this might give you chills. It did me the first time I read it. These unblemished lambs were born, and they were wrapped in claws. These unblemished lambs were wrapped in claws. They were wrapped in swaddling clothes, as a matter of fact. And they were brought to Jerusalem as Passover lambs, and they were sacrifices in the temple. This is an extraordinary foreshadowing of the Lamb of God that's coming from Jerusalem, isn't it? Okay, later in Scripture, Micah announces in Micah 4.8 that the tower of flock, to the tower of flock the same place Rachel was buried, would come a king, the one true king, Jesus. There we go back to the crown again. Cradle, cross, crown. I'm starting to steal that, preacher, but that was just too good not to steal it. So listen, on the night, let's think back to the story we just told, the story we've known all our lives. On that night, baby Jesus was born. There were shepherds watching their flock, as it said, the angel appeared, said the child's revealed. Remember, I asked you to underline if you wanted to. This shall be a sign to you. You will see a baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now that we know what we know, what's going through those shepherds' minds at that point? As a matter of fact, these shepherds weren't ordinary shepherds. They just you know, kept, took care of the sheep and protected them and made sure they were safe, etc. These weren't ordinary. These were trained. They were, in fact, they were many referred to as Levitical uh, shepherds. Okay, so what does that mean? Priestly shepherds. They were trained in, in how to raise these lambs up, the unblemished lambs, and keep them unblemished. One of the reasons to wrap them in swaddling clothes and lay them in that manger, which is a carved-out stone, don't, don't visual, for this, don't visualize the wooden manger. This is a carved-out stone. They would wrap them, lay them in the stones. They didn't hurt themselves so that the mamas didn't step on them, so that they didn't run off and break something or, or just even 
pull a, you know, rub into something and pull a piece of wool out, right? Or at that age, it'd be more like their fur. So it was for protection. So imagine, what did the shepherds realize when they heard that story? You're going to find a baby in swaddling clothes. What do you think they thought? You think they might have thought an, an unblemished lamb? You think they might have thought a sacrificial lamb? Do you think they would have known exactly? Because how many mangers would have been in Bethlehem? More than one, you think? <laughs> Especially now that we know that one of its big industry was raising lambs, specifically sacrificial lambs. How many lambs were sacrificed at the temple during Passover? Tens of thousands. So was there more than one manger? They, there might have been a hundred mangers, mangers or more. Thousands, perhaps, except that Levitical shepherds, they were trained. They required special treatment, these spotless lambs, special treatment. So there was one place they would take these ewes when it was time to, for them to birth a lamb. They would take them to a special place. Some thought it was the tower of the flock. Many scholars think it's the tower of the flock is where they went, where underneath on the first floor was like a cave. Others think it's just a cave, but it was one cave or one spot in the tower of, of the flock where the special unblemished lambs were taken, the, the perfect ewes were taken to have that unblemished lamb that would be marked for sacrificial at, the, at Passover. One place. So now all of a sudden, this one cave was kept sterile, kept clean, awaiting the arrival of the newborn sacrificial lambs. So the newborn lamb wrapped in that clean swaddling, all, all that we've talked about already. The declaration was made to these shepherds, and they knew exactly where to go. They knew what cave. They knew exactly what manger, didn't they, from what we've just talked about. Again, this is based on Jewish history, Hebrew tradition, etc. They knew where to go to discover the baby, Jesus. The future king that the angel told them about. There's a lot of places, but they knew the exact one. Throughout the years, we've heard and listened to the account of the birth of Jesus. They went to Bethlehem. They traveled there because of you know what we just read of the taxes that the Caesar had placed and they had all citizens go there. When they arrived, there were too many people, and the shepherds knew exactly where to go. Where that sacrificial lamb was born. Now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Isn't that amazing, though? Linda and I have, Linda especially, <clears throat> has been studying Hebrew a while. But it's amazing what more you get from, thing, from Scripture if you know a little with the Hebrew and the background and the culture and the history. And this just brings a whole lot more to the story, but still there's more to the story. Cradle to the cross to the crown. Now, I'm a preacher. You sent me a cartoon this morning, so you're going to think I'm going there, but I want to talk about the cross for just a minute, even though this is Christmas, because it all goes together. Doesn't this, that, <clears throat> that baby born in that manger... Was he unblemished? Was he the perfect lamb, the lamb of God? Was he going to be 30-some years later? Would he be the sacrificial lamb for all of us? 
and die for all of our sins? Isn't that a perfect part of the story, how he was born? And then all the way, let's just fast forward all the way to the end, how he died and then was resurrected for three days later. Died for our sins, resurrected, and then he, he, he defeated Satan the heat with his put a bruise on his heel right then and there. He died and resurrected. So I got to say, be on the cross a few short years later. So choosing the Lamb, the pilgrims streaming into Jerusalem, and by their shouts, so the lambs, the Levitical shepherd, the priestly shepherds would choose these lambs to be sacrificed. But the people, when Jesus entered on Palm Sunday, Jerusalem. And all the people said, blessed is the kingdom that comes in the name of the blessed in the name of the Lord. Save us, I pray. These are all the people singing that and saying that as they walked to the streets of, toward Jerusalem. They actually were choosing their sacrificial lamb right there, weren't they? They were proclaiming him and they were believing they had chosen the Messiah. They'd reached a decision. They'd made a choice. This is our sacrificial lamb. Remember, he's going in there for Passover, isn't he? A week ahead of Passover. Checking for blemish. Listen to this. Check that lamb, that sacrificial lamb for blemish. Didn't the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees and the teachers of the Torah, didn't they all ask Jesus questions that week and try to trip him up? They were trying to check him for blemishes. They were trying to check him for mistakes. And he didn't have any. So he was the perfect lamb. Casting out leaven, that took place during Passover. The Torah instructs that all leaven cast out of the homes. Jesus went into the temple and cast all, cleaned house. That's what casting out the leaven means. He cleaned house that week. Passover Eve. Jesus' celebration of Seder, Passover, is a day, the Seder meal, his Passover meal, is a day early because he wants to have it with his disciples, right? It's with his friends, just like we do. If friends are, if we can't do it on the day of Christmas Eve, we'll have to do it a day before, or the week before. So Jesus had it a day early. Let's go to the time of slaughter. Sacrificial lambs. A short time later, Jesus hung on the cross. The next day, it is the third hour, or 9 o'clock in the morning, looking at Mark. On that day, the temple was crowded with pilgrims bringing their lambs for the Passover. Again, thousands of, tens of thousands of lambs. Picture this, picture this, tens of thousands of lambs. Remember, the temple in total was about 35 acres. So they had the the inner part, and then they had the, the outer part, and they had the the outer circle that was for the Gentiles. So all of this, how many lambs can you put in 35 acres? A good tens of thousands. So all the priesthood of Israel was at the temple at this festival. The great numbers of lamb to be slaughtered. The afternoon was performed early. Okay, so the times were all changed around a little bit from what was normal Passover. Now listen to this part. The death of the lamb. When the ninth hour arrived, a long blast of the shofar signaled that the Levites began chanting Psalms 113, 118. You ought to look at that later. 
The gates of the inner courts were open, and the first crowds of Israelites with their lambs already, their unblemished, perfect, sacrificial lambs, rushed in. And within minutes, they started sacrificing them, killing them. Blood spilled. This is PG for the children. So blood spilled, so much so that just in a few minutes, the gutters were red with the, with the sacrificial sacrificing of these lambs gushing forth. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to use our time. Jesus had been on the cross for six hours. You all know this part of the story. It's odd that I'm making it part of this Christmas story, but this brings it all the way around, doesn't it? This is the real reason for the season right here. So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I want you to picture something. The <clears throat> Jesus hanging on the cross for six hours. The temple was not that far away. I believe he could have possibly seen it. I'm positive that he heard it because there were ten thousands of lambs, sacrificial lambs, being sacrificed for the Passover celebration. Right? So I know he heard that. I've worked, Lynn and I have worked with lambs. We know what they sound like. Just try to catch one and find out. And if you get a hold of one, find out. I know Preacher and Debbie can hear it from their house when we grab a hold of a lamb. So I know Jesus heard this as he was on that cross, almost to his last breath. Since the time frame had moved back, it's now 3 o'clock. That's when the lambs have been killed and they're now going to be prepared for roasting and so forth. They're, they're hung like this. This is Jewish history and culture. They're hung like this on a cross, on hooks down there to be processed. I'm talking about tens of thousands of them at the same moment Jesus does. So those lambs were all sacrificed at the same time. I'm talking about the sacrificial lambs for Passover. I'm talking about the sacrificial lambs who died on a cross for our sins. We're all died at the same time, the Passover lambs, because of the time frame being moved. I don't know about you, but right there, he, he that was prophecy fulfilled from Genesis 3.15, where it was said that Jesus, someday the seed of Eve will crush the skull of the serpent and bruise his heel. That's the moment it, it's happened. And, of course, the resurrection. And there we go. Now that now we're to the crown. Now we're to the crown. I, uh, I know this wasn't an uplifting uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer type story for Christmas. But it's the true story of Christmas. And it's the one that we should be thinking about, isn't it? And if, if there's someone here this morning that, that hasn't received Christ in your heart, Rodney, come on up with uh, Susan, and hasn't accepted Christ and hasn't realized that, that you're a sinner, and that uh, Roman, in Romans it says we've all sinned and come short of God, and what we need to do to resolve that is to say, uh, re- realize that and admit that 
Adventure Center. Go ahead and go ahead and start playing. So admit that you're a sinner. Everybody, go ahead and rise if you would, please. And eyes closed. Admit you're a sinner is the first step. You know, Jesus, the best gift of Christmas is the, the one that Jesus has, is offering you. He's already, he's already prepared the gift. He's already wrapped it. All you've got to do is accept it. Accept it by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I admit that, and I ask for forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness, and I want you in my heart. I want to follow you, Jesus. I've been a fan of yours, but now I want to follow you. I want to live for you. By doing that, you're accepting the wonderful gift of salvation. There's none better. If you haven't already received that gift, I would invite you to come and receive it now. Preacher's down here and we'll talk to you about that gift. If there's someone that in your family or friends, circle of friends, that you're going to be with still today, you want to come up and pray for and maybe talk to them about this gift maybe tell some of the story that that we've looked at in the Bible or some of the things that I've shared with you with them maybe that'll touch their heart it only takes one thing it only takes a spark sometimes to, to touch someone the Holy Spirit's tugging on them if that Holy Spirit's tugging on you this morning, all the all that the Holy Spirit needs you to do is step out and come talk to preacher, or step out and come and pray. Kneel down at the altar here and pray. And sing that out.